I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open. We are in the book of Acts. Is there ever a time when a movie sequel is as good as the original? Some people would say no, never, right? According to IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, and the readers there voted, The Dark Knight, the Batman sequel, was actually the best sequel ever produced. I don't know. I, I could see that, maybe. That's a good one. Terminator 2, Judgment Day is also up there. For me, I'm more of a, you know, The Godfather Part 2. I think that was as good as the original. Rocky 2 was probably, you know, as good as the original. Hollywood knows that if they do really good, and it's becoming worse, I think it's a worse problem. If they do really good with a movie, they'll just make another one, you know, make a sequel. If the first one did good, people are going to watch the second one. And most of the time, it's a flop. Or maybe not a flop, but most of the time, it's not as good, right? The writing's not as good. The script isn't as good. The acting is not as good. The storyline isn't as good, usually, as the original. Well, today we're going to start a new sermon series on the book of Acts. And I am very excited about this because this is a continuation of the story of the life of Jesus. And it's not a flop. <laughs> Guaranteed. Like, Jesus told his followers that they were going to do even greater things than he had done. And so we know that this story is going to be a good story. Last week, we, I talked about Jesus' personal mission statement. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. And he did this through preaching about the kingdom of God, how it had arrived with his arrival. And so he called people to repent, submit to his rule over their lives. And Jesus' basic message was to the people of Israel was, you need to follow me if you want to be a part of the heavenly kingdom. That's ba his basic message. And he proved his words by his actions. He did miracles proving who he was, that he was who he said he was. But he also showed love to people, especially those who were on the margins of society and the outcasts. And he showed love to all sinners by dying on a cross and rising again. And this is how we know that Jesus is the Messiah King. He died and rose again. Well, after his resurrection... He was on the earth for 40 days, and one of the last things he did, and he said to his group of followers, was he was on a mountainside, and he spoke about, right before he ascended into heaven, the book of Matthew records that he gave his followers what we have come to be called, known as the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, on the mountain, right before he ascended, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus leaves this final instructions after saying that all authority is his, and he says that he's going to be with his followers. So naturally, this begs the question, okay, how can you leave and still be with us? How can you say I'm going and then I'm staying at the same time? Well, in John 16, 7, Jesus said that he was his final teaching with his disciples on the night that he was arrested. It's recorded in John's chapter 14 through 16. John, Jesus says that he's going to send another helper like himself in order to accomplish all that he's going to accomplish. And it's so basically Jesus says, you know what? This isn't the end. This is, you know, this is the beginning. And trust me, the sequel is better than the original, is what Jesus is saying. And you're going to be blown away by the ending, just so you know. Because someday Jesus is going to come back again. 
So here we are. We are living now in this time after the resurrection. We are living in a time in which the kingdom of God has come and is growing. We are living in the last days. Jesus said that the gospel is going to spread throughout the whole world and then the end would come. And that is now. That is this time. That's what's happening. So I thought it would be really appropriate considering our church and considering the, the times in which we live to look at the sequel to the life of Jesus that's recorded in the book of Acts. And so the theme of today's message is kind of like the theme for the whole sermon series, and that is our mission is to be a witness. Our mission is to witness. We are called by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for Jesus. That's what it's all about. And the disciples, their mission started in the city of Jerusalem, and then it expanded to the regions of Judea, then it crossed racial divides into Samaria, and then it went into the uttermost parts of the earth, or the ends of the earth. But let's start at the beginning. The book is called The Acts. Now, your Bible might say Acts in mine. It actually says The Acts of the Apostles. Well, you're going to see in the book of Acts that it's really not about all of the apostles. Primarily, it, it centers around Peter in the first half, and in the second half, it centers around Paul. So it, it's not really about them. And in fact, it's not really about them at all. It's really about what Jesus and the Holy Spirit is doing through them. It's about Jesus even said, like, this is about the activities of Jesus after he left. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, what the apostles accomplished. So, like, a better title might be the acts of Jesus and the Spirit through the apostles. That's what it's really all about. But we're not going to rewrite our Bibles today, you know what I'm saying? Like, we've, like, everybody who preaches on the acts makes sure you, I mean, that everybody knows it's not really about the apostles. They wouldn't even say it was about them. But it is what it is, so we're going to go with it. We're looking in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. So right away, we see that the author here is referring to a previous work, isn't he? He's saying, in my previous book. So this is a second book. This is part two of a two-part series of which the author wrote this book. And so from the context of the book, we know that Luke, the physician, is writing this letter, and it appears that he's addressing it to a person that he calls Theophilus here. Now, there are two theories about the name Theophilus. If it was a real person, then he was probably an official of some kind, because in Luke, it says that he's writing his letter to most excellent Theophilus. So the title most excellent could have meant that he was somebody who, who um, was a high-ranking official, somebody who was well-known. And because of that title, he probably had a lot of money, and a lot of people think that he financed Luke's travels and Luke's research in order to write this. That's why Luke is addressing it. This is what you would do if you were writing a letter. If it, even if it was for the general population, it was kind of like how our books today will have an introduction or a preface, and it'll say, this is to so-and-so, many thanks to my agent and this person who proofread, all this other stuff. So he's saying, this is for you, most excellent Theophilus, probably because he paid for it all. But also, this is another thing to think about, this could have been a pseudonym, Theophilus, because in Greek, Theo is God, um, Lys is lover, so it could, it could like, it roughly means God lover. So it could have just been a generic name for a God lover. It could have been a Gentile who had some money. It could have been just uh, somebody who didn't want his name to be known and just said, just call me 
a lover of God, right? Just call me a man of God. That's all you need to put in there, Luke. We don't really know, but we think it was a Gentile convert who financed this research and this writing that he did. So, you know, he starts with that. I wanted to go back to Luke chapter 1 to look at what he says in Luke chapter 1. So in Luke chapter 1, because that's kind of where the book of Acts starts, right? It's a continuation. You've got to look at the part 1. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, starting in verse 1. Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who have from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So a couple things to take note about Luke's writing and the purpose of his writing. First of all, he said that many people have endeavored to have a written account of the life of Jesus. And he said these were eyewitnesses. These were people from the beginning. That's why we have the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, and the book of John. Also, uh, there's another, um, there, there might have been, you know, there was, other people had recorded what they had heard and they all, these people were trustworthy they were first-hand eyewitness accounts this wasn't just somebody who heard something who heard something who heard something right this was eyewitness accounts who wrote this down because people have been talking about jesus and some people say well why didn't they write it down like the year after jesus ascended well they thought he was coming back sooner and i think it was probably maybe like several years had passed and they're like we should probably write some of this stuff down that we eyewitnessed because we don't know when he's going to come back again. And Luke said he had followed these things closely for some time. So this wasn't just like a fly-by-night thing. He had investigated this. Luke was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew, which is very significant when you compare all the accounts of Jesus' life. Some of them, like Matthew, who was an apostle of Jesus, he was a Jew. And he wrote, when you read his writing, you can see that he addresses Jewish things more often than Luke. Luke seems to like sometimes talk about Gentiles a lot. Like he mentions Cornelius. He mentions other stories where he talks about how Jesus includes Gentiles, not just Jewish people. It says that Luke was, uh, in, in the writings of Paul, it says that Luke was a, a physician. He was a traveling companion with Paul. As we get into the later part of the book of Acts, instead of I, or instead of doing um, third, instead of like saying this is what happened and this is what happened, he starts saying we did this. We traveled to this place. And there's three major sections that we call the we sections, W-E sections of, of the book of Acts that talk about how, the, okay, wait a second, the author is traveling with Paul now. He's saying, we went to this place. We, well, who is this we? He wasn't with him all the time, but a big portion of the time he was with him. And we read from Paul's letter to the Colossians where he calls Luke a traveling companion. He calls him the beloved physician. We know that as a physician, he was highly educated. And when you look at the original Greek, he wrote in some of the best Greek that, that's in the New Testament. The crazy thing about Luke is we don't really think about Luke as being a big author because he didn't write a bunch of books, right? You remember John had four. You know, Paul wrote a bunch of the letters in the New Testament. But if you go just by size, Luke wrote most of the New Testament. Just the sheer volume, Luke was, wrote the bigger portion of the New Testament. Paul considered him a co-worker. In Philemon, verse 24, Paul lists Luke among his co-workers, along with Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas. 
And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, if you remember near the end of Paul's travels and his, um, his life, a very sad ending, he says that Luke alone is with me. Remember at one time he said, everybody abandoned me. In jail, he was left all alone. He said, except for Luke. Luke stuck by me. And I think that really speaks to this person of Luke and who he was. And you think about all that Paul went through. You remember the shipwrecks, getting stoned, you know, being left for dead. And five times, remember Paul went through the, the punishment that the Jews would dealt to somebody that they didn't want to kill. They would give them 39 lashes. It was 40 lashes because they thought that would kill somebody. 40 minus 1. 39 lashes with a whip. And they would leave you half dead. That happened to Paul five times. Imagine if you were a good friend of Paul's, just seeing him go through that five different times and how beneficial it was to have a physician as your traveling companion to take care of you. I imagine it was Luke who picked him up literally and laid him out and treated his wounds when he was suffering through that. I'm sure that Paul looked and relied on Luke tremendously throughout his whole life because he said, everybody abandoned me except for him. And when he's writing Luke and Acts together, he said he wanted to write an orderly account of the things that we have seen taking place, an orderly account. That means this isn't just like Proverbs, right? This isn't just a random collection of stories and sayings about Jesus or about the things that happened with the apostles. Like, this is, an, this is in order. And you can know this with certainty. That's why he's writing this down, because he wanted to make, he, accuracy mattered, right? Accuracy mattered. He wanted things to be certain. And this really speaks to me very well, because I am more of an analytical thinker in my thinking. So I appreciate his desire to have a strong, logical, accurate account of the person and work of Jesus. So that was the first book. That was his first, and in fact, some people say that, um, the reason why it was broken up is because you couldn't fit that much material onto one scroll. So it ended up becoming two scrolls. And at first it was together, but then it ended up just becoming separate so that you have two distinct books. Because if you look back now in the book of Acts, he is addressing the same guy. He's addressing Theophilus. Theophilus, sorry. His name was a tongue twister. It's the same person. But look, he says... You know, previously I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I love that right there. He says, all that Jesus began to do. Remember at the end of John, if you were here for that, John said, you know, I have written, I am sure if you wrote down everything that Jesus said and done, all the books in the world couldn't contain all that he had said and done. Well, Luke says, that was just the beginning. That's crazy, isn't it? And if that was the beginning, that means that this is now the continuation if that was the beginning, this is the continuation here. And it's not the end. So the end of the story of Jesus isn't the end of the story. God has, and God is establishing his church. He's calling out a people group who will collectively be the body of Christ. The church will be the representative of God throughout the earth. Jesus died to redeem a people group. Jesus died to save sinners to establish his church. And now the church begins, and now the church is continuing. You know, like um, sometimes when people say, when did your church, when did River City begin? When did your church begin? When did, well, you know what they say? Other pastors, they'll say, when did your church launch? And I'm like, eh, 
we didn't really launch. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't like, it wasn't like, whoosh, you know what I'm saying? Like, we kind of had a rolling start. You know, that's how I like to say it. And what I do is I tell some people, we've been in this space since 2016, praise the Lord. You know, that is great. But, um, I, and I actually, like, I push back with some of my friends. I'm like, I don't even really like the term launch anymore. You know when the church started? 2,000 years ago, right? Acts chapter 1, that's when we started. That's when the church started. So we are just a part. What we're doing here this morning is not anything new, right? When we do baptism, when we do the Lord's Supper, we're not inventing something. We're just trying to get in line with everything that the Lord has been doing, get in line with the church, the historic church that's been going on for 2,000 years. I think that's pretty cool. And when, so when Luke is writing Acts, he gives some descriptive, there, you notice as we get going here, there'll be some descriptive portions and there'll be some prescriptive portions. In other words, sometimes the Bible describes things and is not saying this is what you should do, right? You know, and sometimes the Bible says this is what you ought to do. So whenever you read the Bible, determine whether this is descriptive, describing something, or it's prescriptive, something that, you, that we ought to adjust our lives according to. So in, back to Acts chapter 1, he says that he has, uh, until the day that Jesus was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So this is what I would say, Jesus says, this is the mission. He's getting ready to say this. He's going to tell them, here's your mission. First of all, wait. He'd already given the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, and now they're near Jerusalem, and Jesus says, you need to wait. So they just saw this amazing miracle. They've been, Jesus had been teaching them, opening their eyes to all of Scripture, you know, getting them to see things like, wow, this is really neat. But he says, you need to wait. Sometimes God tells us to wait, and that's really hard. We don't understand. Why, why do I need to wait? You know, I know what i got to do. Let's go, you know. But Jesus says, hold on. Just chill for a second. Why did God make them wait? Well, first of all, in verse 3, it says that he gave them many proofs to his resurrection. So in other words, sometimes when you go through difficult times and you might be like, man, this is not easy. I'm, I'm going through some suffering here. And you might start to question things. You can look back and say, wait a minute. Well, there were a lot of proofs, right? So the disciples might have said, did Jesus really raise from the grave? Well, you know, I did put my finger in his hand. There's that, right? So he wanted to make sure that you would know, that you would really know for sure that he was there. In fact, remember when he first appeared to his disciples, they were eating breakfast, or Jesus was cooking breakfast, and he was eating fish. All right, I'm alive. He's eating, you know. What do I need to do to prove to you I'm alive? I'm eating fish right here. And he appeared to them more than once. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says he appeared to, um, to the apostles, to Peter, and then he appeared to 500 brothers all at the same time. 500 people all at the same time so that they know this wasn't just some mass hallucination. They really got who he, that he was alive. And then secondly, I think what he wanted them to do is to, to come to the realization that there's nothing that we can do apart from Christ. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This was a time of preparation and teaching for them. They were getting ready to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was necessary for them to have an understanding of spiritual things. We can't understand the things of God if it wasn't for God revealing his, himself to us. 
And Jesus had taught about the Holy Spirit in that final teaching in John chapter 14. Let me give you a few of the things that Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit was going to come and do for them. In John 14, 26, he said the Holy Spirit is a teacher, reminding them about everything that Jesus had taught. He's a reminder. John 15, 26, it says the Holy Spirit is a helper from the Father and the Son who's going to bear witness about the Son. The Holy Spirit is also the helper. He convicts us of sin, helping us to see that when we are living opposed to God and, and then when we ought to repent of our sin. John 16 also says that the Holy Spirit is a guide for us. And then finally, the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to glorify Jesus. The one who's going to glorify Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job, is to point to Jesus. When I was in, um, I want to say, uh, by the way, congratulations to Addison. She's not here this morning, but um, the, some of the kids did uh, um, a play this week. They did Annie and Addison and some of the other youth group kids were a part of the play. My wife went twice. She said it was great. It was an awesome thing. Um, I, I love musicals and plays, not as much as my wife. She really loves them. But when I was in high school, I was a part of plays at first. And I'm not going to act them out or sing any songs for you. Because what I did was I moved to the soundboard, and then I moved to the lighting board. And not, not the lighting board, but I got to do the spotlights. Being in the spotlight was pretty cool. I was chosen by a friend of mine, and he trained me to be a spotlight operator for the big musicals in my high school. And so... It was, uh, it was a pretty in intense job. What you didn't want to do was to have to mess up and have everybody turn around and look up at you. That was like the most embarrassing thing that, to have happen. So you wanted to be on, on point. What your job to do as a spotlight operator was to shine the spotlight on the person performing on stage. That was the spotlight operator's job. You know, I didn't want to anybody to, after the show, to say... That spotlight operator, he was really something. You know what I mean? Because that could mean two different things, right? <laughs> he was horrible, you know, or he was great. That's not what my job was to do. My job was to point the spotlight at the person performing so everyone would have ended the show by saying, what a great performance so-and-so gave, right? See, the Holy Spirit's job, he even said, was to point at Jesus. And so we don't want to be a group of people who would actually blaspheme the Holy Spirit by saying, wow, what a great job the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit's like, why are you looking at me for it? You're supposed to be looking at Jesus. So if you want uh, to really honor the Holy Spirit, then honor the one the Holy Spirit's honoring, which is Jesus. If some um, Christians and some churches will say, you know, we make much of the Holy Spirit. We even like have an image, uh, like a, a picture that say this, this picture of an animal represents the Holy Spirit. This represents the Holy Spirit. Where, which is okay, I can see what you're saying, but what was the Holy Spirit doing the whole time? Was saying, point to Jesus, directing his attention at Jesus. And I think we honor the Holy Spirit when we magnify Jesus Christ. So if you want to find a church that honors the Holy Spirit, find a church that lifts up Jesus Christ. Because that's what he wants to do too. To say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. And yes, the Holy, Jesus said, I'm sending one just like me. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he will do... Those things that I told you, he will convict you of sin and righteousness. He will remind you of things, of everything that I have taught. He will take our dead lives and make it new life. And he will glorify Jesus. 
So that was everything Jesus said was going to come. And, and then he tells them in, in the book, beginning of Acts, I want you to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 7. So he says that you're going to be baptized by the whole, with the Holy Spirit. He's going to come on you, and you're going, to, you're going to understand things you never understood before. You're going to do things you, you never imagined before. And, but you need to wait until I send the Holy Spirit. So verse 6, they came together, and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they think the end is near. By the way, it's, it is funny, isn't it? Jesus has all these plans and said, I'm going to do this and this. And they say, hey, what about Israel? Yeah. Are we going to be like, is this the end where you're going to establish Israel as the city on a hill and destroy all the enemies? And Jesus is like, if I'm Jesus, I'm starting to shake my head now and be like, no. Because here's the thing. The kingdom of God is not centered around Israel anymore. That's what he said. He's basically, he kind of like brushes them off. Because salvation is now no longer through an ethnic people group. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's no longer about a physical kingdom being established on earth. It's a spiritual kingdom that comes inside. It comes through the heart. So it's not this, you know, the church is now not about big buildings. It's not about conquering land or anything like that. In fact, Jesus had taught that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's so tiny you can barely see it. But then you plant it and it grows into to be this great unseen thing. So the church it looks different now than it did in the Old Testament times. And the amazing thing is, here's what is the, the really important thing. It, it's really, so they had this narrow mind. They thought the, the kingdom of heaven was here now. And Jesus is like, no, no, it's so much better than you ever imagined. Really, it is, isn't it? Because now all kinds of people can get saved. Now you can have a church with just a handful of people in a storefront in Swissville. We don't have to go worship on a mountain somewhere. We can worship here now. So it's, it's way better, isn't it? That's amazing what God has done. How he has formed a people group that spans nations and tribes and languages across all boundaries, across ge every geographic barrier. The church has started tiny, and it's growing and expanding, and that's what the story of Acts is all about. How amazing that is. So Jesus tells them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sights. So Jesus says, you're going to be a witness. And that's one of the key words in the book of Acts. 39 times the word witness appears. So it's a huge theme. To be a witness means that you say, what, you say something that happened. If you get called to be a witness in a court case, you, you're not up there to give your opinion on the best restaurant in Pittsburgh. In fact, you're not really up there to answer anything besides what the lawyer asked you. If, you, if they ask you a question and you start going on blabbing about something, they'll cut you off. Like, no, I ask you a simple question, you answer, right? That's what you are called to do. That's what a witness is. It's not about opinions. It's not for you to give a speech. It's for you to, to answer the questions, to, be, to say this is what happened. You state the honest facts, and that's it. And that's what Jesus told his followers to do, to state the facts. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And that word English, 
I mean, the word witness comes from our, um, that we have in our English. It's actually a, a transliteration of the Greek word martyr. Martyr. So martyr in Greek is witness in English. A martyr that we think of today is a Christian who was killed for his or her faith in Christ. And it became synonymous because the first Christians were killed as martyrs because of their witness about who Jesus is. You see, the first Christians, you know, they, they weren't really, that was, that was the problem. The problem wasn't that they were trying to meet together or live differently in the Roman Empire. It was because they said Jesus is Lord. That was the problem, that Jesus is Lord. And it upset the social order, that people thought it was upsetting the social fabric of society because you will not say the right thing and you will not bow the knee to Caesar. So, Four things about the mission of Jesus. Our mission to witness is about the person of Jesus Christ, about the facts of Jesus Christ. And it's all about Jesus. There's no more religious system. There's no secret club to join. There's no um, ladder that you have to climb up. It's about salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, our mission to witness comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. These unlearned men became amazing speakers. These, these guys who, you know, didn't come from much, they were able to withstand public floggings. They were bold. In fact, that's one of the things that we'll see about these guys who went on to talk. They said, uh, they noticed that these, these guys were different. And Jesus actually promised in Matthew chapter 10 that he said, when you go before the officials, don't worry about saying all the right things. You know, you worry about opening your mouth because you think, oh, you're going to say something wrong. Jesus said, you will have the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. Trust in him whenever you are called to give an account, to give a witness. You know, and the, 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 the call too you know, I think it's great that we give a testimony about what the Lord's done in our life. You know, I've asked Drew to do that, to give a testimony. But ultimately, when we share with other people, it's not about us, really. It's about them. And every time the disciples gave a testimony, it was about Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. Our mission to witness also comes with this promise of kingdom expansion. That God's word will not return void. So it started in Jerusalem. And it expanded to Judea. It expanded to Samaria. And then it expanded to the ends of the earth. And finally, our mission to witness includes one of worship and anticipation of Jesus' return. In verse 9, it says that after Jesus said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus rose from the grave, bodily, physically rose from the grave, and then he physically ascended into heaven. And maybe it was like a, a rain cloud, but when he talks about a cloud hiding him, we can't help but think of the reference of cloud in scripture to the presence of God. Like it was a cloud, a pillar of cloud that led the Israelites out of captivity in the wilderness. The, the glory of God that dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple was in the form of a cloud. And now a cloud hides Jesus in the heavens as he ascended. And so if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, 
imagine you're standing there and a person, who's a physical person, because you've touched him, you've seen him eat, starts floating up. Must have been a shocking experience, right? Floating up into heaven. And of course, you're standing there just looking up, thinking, what just happened? And then all of a sudden, you remember what he says. He's coming back again. Man, he is coming back again. And then these guys appear and say, he's going to come. Just like you saw him, he's going to come back. You can be assured of that. He will come again. If you look in Luke at the final, um, Luke chapter 24, Luke also records at the end of Luke, the, kind of this, another account of what happens at the beginning of Acts. In Luke 24, 50, it says that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so that's what they did. They, that was, they did. Before the Holy Spirit came, they went back and they gathered together. And with great joy, they continued to worship. And so I called the title of this sermon, Jesus Continued. You know, we are in this continuation. The kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is continuing. And the kingdom of God will be completed when Jesus comes again. So in the middle of that, in the meantime, we're going to continue to worship. And we're going to continue to make worshipers of him. You know, that is why, was it John Piper who said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is expanding the worship of Jesus. Expanding those who haven't heard the gospel, we want more and more people to get saved so that they will also be worshipers of Jesus because he is worthy of more worship. So let's do that together as his church. Let's be worshipers. Let's make more worshipers. And let's join together in worshiping him this morning.